our brains are wired to compare ourselves to the people around us. Now, this is a problem when you spend a lot of time on social media or on media in general. Really, the only fair comparison is to yourself, maybe yesterday. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, ladies and germs. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Stephanie Estima. And today I am just thrilled to bring you this conversation with personal trainer and co-founder of Mind Pump Media, Sal Di Stefano. He and I have such a robust conversation about myths in fitness and the way that we are sort of culturally uh, conditioned to view things like strength training and food. And we go on a big dive on all things resistance training, some of the benefits that it can afford. And we talk a lot about this in the context of women. So we talk about hormonal profiling, we talk about the maintenance of muscle, we talk about the benefits in terms of fat uh, loss and building muscle, we talk about female athletes, we talk about sort of the two populations that have really been lied to the most, which is the elderly and women, and often those two together, elderly women, is where we often uh, see things going awry. And we start off our conversation around the idea of beliefs and behaviors. So Sal correctly um, has identified that maybe it's not about all the macro counting and the calorie counting, but maybe it's about getting someone to constantly and persistently over time change their behavior. And as a result of that, of course, you have the physique that you want, the sculpted body, the hypertrophy of the muscle. And we talk about some of the mental benefits that physical, that resistance training can afford things like discipline and improving your response to pain and working your tolerance and improving your ability to care for yourself and to trust yourself. We also talk about nutrition and how we can have a better relationship um, with food. And then towards the end of our conversation, we also talk about weight training for children and some of the myths that surround that all in all, I I blinked and we had already been talking for 90 minutes. Uh, I can't wait for my next uh, encounter uh, and opportunity to have a conversation with him. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I had having it. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Sal Di Stefano. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. 
For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water, and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Sal Di Stefano, welcome so much to the Better Podcast. I'm just thrilled to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And you said my name right. You're the first person yeah. <laughs> that said my name right. Nobody ever says it right. I have uh, my fiance is Italian, okay. um, so it is very important. And I uh, I speak French, and my uh, my children are uh, Greek, so it's very important to get the tone right where you where you pronounce the name. So thank you. It makes you. a big difference. Thank you. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> um, all right. So I have been, I was saying to you in the pre-chat, I'm so excited to have you on the show. We are so aligned in so many ways, but just by way of background, um, you host uh, Mind Pump. You are uh, you and a, you know a bunch of uh, your, your colleagues host Mind Pump, uh, which is a huge uh, fitness podcast. And I wondered if you could just give give a little bit of background in terms of your history in the fitness industry and uh, sort of some of the things that you were observing uh, that maybe didn't sit right and sort of the evolution of your uh, of your platform. Yeah, no, I, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the people in the fitness and health space that really are making the biggest impact, that are m- making the, the, the best and biggest impacts, I would say, are the ones that work with people uh, one-on-one or in close contact. So, you know, really good coaches and trainers and people who work with nutrition, they make a big impact because they work with people on an everyday basis and they, they help people overcome challenges. And you learn a lot through that process. Um, and that's what I did for, for over two decades. It's what my co-host did for over two decades. We were all trainers and, and coaches and gym managers for a very, very long time. And through that process, you learn what works, what doesn't work. And when I say what works, I don't mean, you know, what gets people to lose weight or what gets people to look good, but rather what works forever, right? Like, how can I get somebody who's not a fitness fanatic, somebody who's not um, infatuated with exercise like I was, how do I get that person to develop a lifelong relationship with nutrition and exercise in ways that really improve their quality of life and help them uh, be healthier? That's a really tough thing to do. Um, And and you start to figure that out. It takes a long time. Uh, You know, most trainers and coaches get into the space and we tend to be um, a bit idealistic with our approach. And you quick, if you really care about people, you quickly realize like this isn't working. You know, I, I can definitely get people lose 30 pounds, but I'm not getting or helping people keep it off. That's the real challenge. Um, and so that's what we did for a long time through that process as a coach or a trainer or somebody who works with people um, to improve their health. You're constantly blocking and fighting misinformation. It's so much of it's out there. Like if you go online, if you're a, a, just a person interested in improving their health and you go online and you just look up, you know, how do I lose weight or how do I become more healthy? How do I get stronger? How do I get, you know, my back to stop hurting or whatever? I, I, 90% of the information out there is terrible. Uh, 90% of it is wrong. Either doesn't apply to you or is just communicated uh, poorly or is feeding into your insecurities 
is, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, preying on some of your insecurities um, and just obviously super ineffective. And so when you're training and coaching people, they're bringing things to you all the time. Like, hey, my friend tried this diet and hey, I read this article and this is what I did before. And so you're just doing this the whole time and the whole time you're really trying to guide and help them. And you, again, you figure out how to do it the right way. Um, and I did that for a long time. Then I met in person, my co-hosts. And although we came from different backgrounds, we all did the same thing in the sense that we all worked in the fitness and health space, but we all did come from different backgrounds. We all came to the same conclusions and we all, and we all had the same frustrations. And we decided that a podcast would be a great medium to be able to communicate what we've been communicating to clients for a long time. And we picked podcasts because it's long form. You can't communicate effectively, at least, um, you know, how to really change your relationship to exercise and nutrition with a, an Instagram post or a picture um, or even an article. It's a conversation. It's ongoing. You know, I, I must, we've done now, I don't know, 1700 episodes. So you're looking at probably, you know, 2,500 hours or 3000 hours or more of podcasts. I've talked about fat loss, you know, I don't know, probably 600 times, maybe more in those podcasts, but in so many different ways. And one of those will reach someone and, and make an impact. And podcasts allow us to do that. Also, the the barrier to enter into that market was very low. So we didn't have to, you know, we weren't beholden to sponsors or to supplement companies, we could say what we wanted. And we did, we went into it that way. We were all already successful. We all had built our businesses, had our clientele. So we weren't under pressure to, you know, make any money. We just wanted to do something that we thought would help. And if it succeeded, that's great. If it didn't, okay. And we did it, we stuck to it and it worked and it resonates with people. And what you hear on the show is what we learned is effective for people that we learned through decades of, of coaching people. So you get this combination of humor, entertainment, uh, real world advice. We focus on behaviors, not necessarily on metrics. You know, I'm not super big on the, you know, the, the physiological metrics that we need to work with. I'm more on the behaviors that lead to the success that we're looking for, because that's humans are behavior based. You know, we're, we're you know, you can tell someone eat so many calories and grams of proteins, fats and carbohydrates. That's not going to work long term. Uh, it's the behaviors that lead to success. And so that's what you hear on the show. And you know, luckily it's, it's worked and it's really resonated with a lot of people. And so that's, that's what we do now. We do that now full-time. We all stopped training people about five years ago. Um, and it's been a total blessing and a, an absolute blast. One of the things I, I appreciate about what you're saying, and this is something that I talk about with some of the doctors and, and coaches that I am now teaching is that nutrition is never just about nutrition. It's like, as you said, it's like, I can tell you to have this certain amount of calories and this amount of fat and this amount of protein and, and how to time it and all this and the fasting and all this stuff. And it is always more about human psychology because you're to your point around, um, behaviors behaviors are always downstream from a set belief system that we have either about ourselves, about our capacity, about our worth, about what we deserve. And I think when you start to, um, unpack some of those, uh, psychological constructs, you know, the, the identity of the individual, uh, and maybe start to reshape, um, you know, maybe how exercise can be, uh, and we'll get into weightlifting and different types of exercise in a moment. But when you can start to restructure for them that this is not a punishment 
let's say, for being obese, but it is more about taking care of the temple that you own. You know, I think we can start to move the needle in terms of behavioral outcomes because we're changing their belief structure. Is that, would you agree with that or have? That's, that's you hit the nail on the head. I mean, um, food is so intricately connected to culture. Um, I mean, you, you just said at the beginning of the show, right? Your, your fiance is Italian, your kids are Greek and, you know, I mean, Italian and Greek food is very cultural, similar because similar regions, but also very different. Um, you know, there's Chinese food and Mexican food and there's, you know, from all over the world, right? There's different cultures. There's different foods that we associate with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's different foods that we associate with different types of events. Like I pretty much, I don't ever really crave popcorn unless I go to the movies, right? Because the movies right. has been closely connected to uh, popcorn. Food is very closely connected to bonding, to emotion. It's the most abused substance in modern societies because it also can be distracting, it can also provide temporary relief from bad feelings. Uh, we can connect uh, trauma to food or, or, you know, good events to food. So it's, it's to, to look at food and to simplify it and say, it's calories, it's nutrients, it's proteins, it's fats, it's carbs. To simplify it that way is extremely arrogant. Um, at, at, at worst, at best, it's ignorant, right? Because food is is so complex. Um, and our, our relationship to food is so complex. So you can't approach it. Now you need to know the information. So it's, it's important to understand, you know, calories and, you know, proteins and fats and carbs, and these foods do this for my body. And those foods do that for my body. That's important to understand. But if you don't work through the, the, the more complex, what really, what food really means to us, if you don't work from that standpoint, you'll never succeed. It'll be very challenging. And then you mentioned something that's very important that I, I talk about all the time on the show, which is why you're exercising in the first place, or even why you're trying to eat right in the first place. If you enter into it, into that state or that, you know, those actions through a, uh, through self-hate, which everybody does, like, like almost nobody goes into a new exercise program from a place of self-love or self-care. And I, I don't, I don't want to make anybody feel bad. This is quite common is actually more common than not. We often, you know, like here's a scenario, you look in the mirror or somebody makes a comment or you see a picture of yourself and you go, Oh yeah, I'm fat or I don't look good. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's not attractive or, Ooh, I'm, I'm, I feel shame for that. I need to go to the gym to change that. Um, so you're going into it from a place of self-hate. Now that's a very powerful short-term motivator in a very, in a, in a short period of time, it'll get you to do a lot of things long-term. It'll never work because at some point you, you, you stop hating. You can't hate yourself forever. You just can't. It's too self-destructive. And then you hear this, this is what you hear quite common, right? If you talk to a friend and maybe you've experienced this yourself, maybe somebody who's watching or listening to this, you talk to a friend who was super consistent with their diet and their exercise, and you haven't seen them for a few months. And then you see them and then you go, Hey, how's that? How's your workouts going? How's your diet going? And say, Oh, I, I stopped, you know, I just, you know, I just need to enjoy life. And, and that's a very, I remember the first time that really dawned on me as a trainer when I heard that, because I've heard that so many times, right? You kind of take it for granted. But I remember the first time it struck me and I paused for a second and I said, I want to enjoy my life. So I stopped exercising and I stopped eating right. Objectively, two things that uh, I, mean, I don't need to, I don't think I need to show studies to prove this, although there's millions of them, uh, you know, to exaggerate it's thousands, at least to show that uh, exercising and eating right improves quality of life, all metrics, 
psychological, mental, physical, like everything, right? And yet people say quite often, I stopped because I wanted to enjoy my life. How is that possible? How can you, how can we, how can we make sense of that? Well, if exercise was a punishment for you feeling, you know, fat, disgusting, gross, whatever, if your diet was restrictive, punishing yourself because I don't know, I can't eat this way. I, 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 I don't look good or whatever. Well, yeah. I mean, eventually you rebel against that. And, and I use the word rebel um, quite literally because when somebody goes off a diet, it's not like they go eat one cookie, right? They go and eat a whole box of cookies. It's, it's just like a kid that rebelled against their parents. Like they don't go and, you know, try one thing that they're not supposed to do. They go off and they go crazy with it. And, uh, and, and you wonder why are we doing this up and down? We are going into it the wrong way. If you go to the gym and you think to yourself, I'm going to take care of me today. It's like, I need to take care of me. My body needs to be, does I deserve to be taken care of? I deserve to have good mobility and to feel good through health. Um, then not only are you going to want to, are you more likely to maintain that because you're taking care of yourself? Here's the best part. You're far more likely to exercise appropriately. You're far less likely to overtrain. You're far less likely to hurt yourself, right? Uh, if you go to the gym and you're tired, you're stressed out, how are you going to take care of yourself? I'm going to go easy. I'm going to walk. Maybe I'll use the sauna. Maybe I'll do some stretching, right? Now exercise becomes this incredible tool to improve your quality of life, regardless of the context of your life in the moment. So that means it could be stress relief. It means you could be exciting and you're, you're hitting new PRs and your lifts and you're running faster than you did before. It means you can go in there to make your joint feel your joints feel better because they're stiff. Um, it can mean a lot of different things, but yeah, we enter into it the wrong way. The, the fitness media space doesn't help because we, again, we prey on the self-hate, right? You're not sexy enough. You don't look good enough. And um, when you go into it the wrong way, you're, you're bound to fail. And the statistics show this uh, 80% of people will stop whatever routine they're doing or go off their diet within the first year. And I would venture to say within three or four years, it's probably closer to 90 something percent. I think the fail rate is almost hundred percent. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this is so true. Um, you know, my audience, as you know, is, uh, I mean, it's men and women, but it's far more women than it is men. And what we, what I often hear is, oh, I tried this diet and I couldn't stay on it. And what ends up happening, at least in the female psyche, and we can maybe unpack this a little bit if you have um, some insight, which I suspect you do, is that we, we blame and shame ourselves. We're like, well, I wasn't able to do the five hit train. I wasn't able to get on the bike five times a week and then go and work out um, and do the, you know, the celebrity, you know, like the Captain Marvel workout or, you know, and I love Captain Marvel and I love Gal Gadot. And I remember, um, you know, when it was like how to get in shape, like Captain Marvel did for her movie or how to get in shape, like Wonder Woman did for her movie. And you hear these things, like you hear these sort of, um, uh, absolutely unrealistic workout regimes that nobody can do. Um, or I remember when Beyonce did um, Coachella, it was like, and she had just had a baby 
and she was eating like apples and like half of a salmon, you know, and then she was like, no, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to train. And she's like training for six hours a day in order to sort of get into a certain, you know, more a certain size. And I think what women end up looking at, you know, exercise and specifically resistance training in general is that, well, this is just too hard. I can't dedicate two hours or six hours like Brie Larson can or Gal Gadot can. Um, so I'm just going to not do it because it's, it's too much. Yeah, no, that's, I'm, I'm glad you went there. This is a, this is a, a big deal. This is the main reason, one of the main reasons why people um, fail on this particular journey, why they find it so not just challenging, uh, but so um, why the journey is so, it sucks. The journey sucks. And I don't mean it in the, it's hard way. I mean, it's hard in the wrong way. Okay. It does. It, yes, it's challenging, but there's good challenging and then there's bad challenging. Um, and this is the bad uh, challenging route. Okay. So let's, let's, I, I want to first talk about the perception we have of uh, like how, the, how we tend to perceive ourselves in comparison to other people. This is very important. Okay. No matter what, our brains are wired to, and this is something you can become aware of. Okay. It's just, but this is just human nature. Our brains are wired to compare ourselves to the people around us. Okay. Now this is a problem when you spend a lot of time on social media or on media in general, it's a very distorted view of things. Okay. So if I go on Instagram and I look at Instagram all the time, for example, I'm going to think, man, every guy's got a six pack. Like every guy is super shredded. Now I'm going to tell you something. I, I managed gyms for over two decades. Okay. I, and this isn't, that's a biased place. These are people who are working out. If I had 70 people working out in my gym, maybe one has a six pack or maybe none. Okay, that's how rare it is. In fact, uh, statistically speaking, it's more rare to have a six pack than it is to be a millionaire. That's actually a true, a true statistic. So, oh my goodness. I didn't yeah, know that. That's hmm. real. So, so it's very unfair to us, to ourselves, to compare ourselves in that way, but you may be doing it unconsciously just because of what you're seeing most of. Um, through social media. Like to give you another example, if I grew up in the NBA, if all I ever saw were professional basketball players, you know, I'm six feet tall, right? I would think I was very short. Okay. Now the reality is it's very rare to see people who are seven feet tall. Okay. But even that, let's even take a step back from that. It's really not fair to compare yourself to other people because you don't know what other people are going through. You don't know if that's even a real representation. Um, and really the only fair comparison is to yourself, maybe yesterday. So we'll start with, with, you know, we'll start with that. Number two, let's go back to self-care. And I'm going to, I'm going to change this a little bit uh, to make it easier, especially for any moms watching right this right now. I, I'm, I'm a father. I have three children um, and uh, you know, I have so much respect for parents and mainly because I think if you really take on the responsibility of being a good parent, it makes you grow as a person and you really understand the action of love. And here's what I explain what I mean by that, right? Taking care of my child means that um, if they ask me for a cookie, most of the time I'll say no. Sometimes I'll say yes. Okay. Taking care of my child means I'm going to try and make sure that they're active because it's good for them, but I'm not going to chain them to a treadmill and beat them up with it. Right. I'm not going to do that to my kid because I love my kid. Why would I do that to my kid? And that's not going to help them. Is it? Okay. Why can't we do that to ourselves? So why do I go to the gym? Why do I go and think to myself, well, the only way this is going to be good is if I punish myself and beat myself up. Well, first of all, you're not even taking care of yourself. You're just trying to punish yourself. 
Of course, you're not going to want to do that. Who wants to do that? Take care of yourself like you would your own kid. What does that look like? It's going to be very appropriate if you're honest with yourself. If you're not exercising now and you haven't for a while, is it two-hour workouts every single day? Well, no, that's so inappropriate. Now, first of all, let's, let's just talk about the, the physiology of that. It's ineffective. I'm going to tell you that right now. You're not going to get faster results working out that way. That's not how the human body works. The human body, first off, getting more fit, burning body fat, building muscle, all the stuff that we want to do, those are all adaptations. Those, it's an adaptation process. So if I, if I exercise and I train with sufficient intensity, which is individual, okay? So sufficient intensity for somebody who's worked out for 10 years is different than someone who's just getting started. But sufficient intensity tells my body, this is a bit of a stress. So what we need to do is we need to adapt so that next time this stress is not causing the same issues. Okay, so if you were actually, in fact, if you were to examine someone who was exercising, take their blood and, you know, look at all the stress markers, it would look like it was uh, bad. You'd be like, oh my God, look at the stress markers. Like what's going on, right? That's because exercise is kind of this hormetic, has this kind of hormetic effect. It's slightly stressful. Your body tries to adapt by getting stronger and more fit so that next time it's no longer stressful. And of course, then you make it a little harder the next time. And this is how you improve. But if you overcome your body's ability to heal and then adapt, all you're ever going to be focused on is healing. Okay. Cause healing is different than adapting. So to use another example, if I got a piece of sandpaper and rubbed my, my palm raw, the first thing my palm, the skin on my palm would have to do is heal. It would have to heal the skin that was damaged. Then the second thing it would do would be adapt and maybe create a thicker layer of skin, eventually creating a callus. But if I rub too hard and I just keep rubbing, my body doesn't care about adapting. It's like, I got to heal. I got to heal. I got to heal. So here's what happens when people train too hard for their body. They only heal and they only damage themselves. They're stuck on this hamster, this hamster wheel. I call it the breakdown recovery trap. It's like breakdown, recover, breakdown, recover, breakdown, recover, never improving never really getting stronger, never really adapting in a positive way. It's just, I'm just here floating, not floating, staying afloat and damaging my body. Now, if you push that hard enough, you overcome your body's ability to even heal and you cause a lot of damage to yourself. And this is the, these are the, this is when people are so determined to hate themselves that they'll ignore all the signs that their body's saying. It's like their hormones will go all over the place. They'll lose their libido. You know, with women, you'll see them lose their period hair will start to fall out, appetite, you know, all over the place, either crazy cravings or no appetite, hot, cold intolerances, and they'll keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing until their body's signals get louder and louder and louder. So that's the, 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 what happens, uh, you know, practically, but psychologically, if you, if you, if you stop trying to punish yourself and you think, how can I be, how can I honestly take care of me right now? as if I were someone I cared about, as if I were my own child or my friend, you're more likely to make those, uh, those good decisions. And it's going to look very appropriate. And nobody, nobody should start from zero to, you know, two hour workouts a day. It just, it's just, even if I had somebody with all the discipline and willpower and time in the world, I wouldn't train them that way. It wouldn't get them there any faster. It would get them there slower. I would train them appropriately. It's a step ladder of progress and it takes time uh, along the way. And here's the best part. When you go into it this way, you actually start to enjoy the journey and then the results are a side effect, right? So you, if you enjoy the journey, 
if you can get to a place, and this is where you want to get to, if you can get to a place where you truly enjoy exercising and being active, you truly enjoy eating in a way that nourishes your body, then the results, the whatever, weight loss, the body sculpting, whatever, that just happens. It's just a side effect. And then here's the best part. When you get to whatever your goal is, it doesn't matter because you still enjoy the journey. Because here's another thing that you end up seeing sometimes is that people are so obsessed with the goal that they, I did it. I lost 30 pounds. Now what? I'm here. What do I do now? And that's when people tend to reverse uh, and, and go back to where they were before. Yeah. And I think the, um, you know, humans, and I've, I've experienced this, you know, myself personally, uh, I've seen other, uh, you know, women that I've coached, like we can do anything that's uncomfortable for like a, a Delta, you know, like a, a, a time period, yeah. you know, a short time period, right? Like I can do anything that's kind of uncomfortable for six months, let's say. Um, but after that, there come, becomes this point of no return, where as you're saying, you rebel and you're like, I'm never coming back to this again. Yeah. And that's absolutely not the goal when it comes to training in particular, when it comes to taking care of yourself, that's not how, and this is, you know, why I often will say, you know, I, I talk about, um, for a lot of women, uh, I see a lot of women in perimenopause where we start to see these hormonal fluctuations and often it moves into sort of this deranged where we, we, we start to see sort of metabolic mayhem and like hormonal derangement and they want, they're like, I don't understand. Like I'm just not, I'm eating one meal a day and I'm doing, you know, no shade to Peloton or whatever, but like, I'm doing like six Peloton things a week. And I don't understand why I have this belly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm accumulating more and more belly weight. Yeah. And I thought, um, I want to lead into a conversation around how women have really been misled around resistance training. But yeah. before we get there, I was, I've, I've heard you talk about this on other shows and I thought it was so beautiful. I just wanted to pause. Uh, and I wanted to, um, start by asking you about why is it that we, when it comes to exercise in general, be it resistance training or cardiovascular work, which are both important, by the way, I'm not, um, poo-pooing any, anything. Why is it that we only focus on how many calories that we are, that we are burning? Like when we're on the elliptical machine, let's say, which always overestimate your calories. If anybody is like an elliptical queen or whatever, they always tell you you've burned 4,000 calories when maybe it's been like 300. Yeah. But why, why is it that we're always focusing on why well, burned like 400 calories versus what you like to speak about, which is the, the hormesis, like the hormetics, like the, the adaptations that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I don't think this was, uh, I don't think there was any nefarious motivator for this misinformation. I just think that, we uh, we simplified everything and then made some, I guess, some logical conclusions in terms of what would be like how we should value exercise. So so I'm going to take a step back. So obviously, obesity epidemic, we've been in it now for decades. This is actually a, a national security issue. If you look at it from a from an economic standpoint, and it's a, it's a big deal. Right. And so government, you know, got involved. We need to help uh, figure this out. Uh, people are obese and, and we're dying of, uh, of these chronic diseases and it's expensive to treat. And let's look at the science. And so on a, on a very simplistic, I guess in a simplistic sense, and this is true, what I'm about to say is true. This isn't everything. It's way more complex than this, but this, what I'm about to say is true. In order to lose weight, you have to burn more calories than you take in. So no matter what, that has to happen for weight loss uh, to occur. Now, now this, it's way more complex. What goes into that is very, can be very complex. But at the end of the day, if I'm eating 3,000 calories, I'm only burning 2,000 calories. It's a law of physics. The extra 1,000 calories will get stored 
as body fat doesn't just evaporate and, and vice versa. If I eat 2000 calories, burn 3000 calories, my body's going to tap into stored calories to make up the difference. So we understood that. So then what we did, and here's where we made the mistake is we looked at exercise and we said, okay, got to burn more than we're taking in. So with diet, eat less. What about exercise? We're going to look at exercise and figure out how many calories we burn while we do it. And that's how we're going to value exercise. Okay. Whatever burns the most calories, that's the most valuable form of exercise. And that's what we should encourage people to do. Now I can, I can see the logic there. Now here's the problem. The problem is it completely ignores the most important factor of exercise, the most important aspect of exercise, which is how it gets your body to adapt. And then what does that mean? That's the most important thing because that's what sticks around. That's, that's what makes the big difference. The calorie burn, okay, is actually the least important thing. That's all, that's all the way down the totem pole in terms of uh, values of exercise. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a study here to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. There's a, a famous study done with modern hunter-gatherers, the, the um, Hadza tribe in northern Tanzania. Now, they live the way we probably did 30,000 years ago, okay? Um, they're hunter-gatherers, so not mo no modern agriculture, no uh, modern technology. They gather and they hunt, and they're very active compared to the average Westerner. I mean, the way you hunt an animal is you, you wound it, and then you run after it until it gets tired, and it dies, and then you take it back. And so that's miles and miles and miles a day, and they, they, they walk for miles a day, and they're just very, very active uh, people. And so scientists went down and said, okay, through some pretty sophisticated testing, they tested their metabolic rates. How many calories are they burning on a daily basis? And at the end of the study, they were pretty shocked to discover that the modern hunter-gatherer burns roughly the same amount of calories as the, as the average Westerner, the average couch potato. Now, at first you think, how's that possible? They're moving all the time. They're chasing down animals. They're trying to find food. They're walking after to find water. They're, they're not on watching TV and movies and driving in cars. Like, how is this even possible? Well, if you, if you look a little deeper, it makes perfect sense if you consider uh, human evolution, right? We evolved for most of human history as hunter-gatherers. If you look at the timeline of modern humans, 90-something percent of the time that we've been on Earth, we were hunter-gatherers. And our bodies adapted to become efficient with calories because it makes no sense for a hunter-gatherer's body to burn 10,000 calories a day. You can't find 10,000 calories in nature. They would, we would have gone extinct. So the body adapted to burn less calories. And that kind of activity, the running, the walking, the constant moving, tells the body to become more efficient with calories. It's an adaptation process. Same thing that lots of running would do. Now, running has its own health benefits, but if that's all you do and you do lots of it, and on top of it, you cut your calories, what your body does is it learns to burn less calories. It learns to become more efficient. It does this through a couple of different ways. The most obvious one being muscle pairing. It actually brings muscle down. And you'll see this in studies. You'll see that People who do lots of cardio with calorie restriction, let's say they lose 10 pounds, five of it will come from muscle. Now, the body's not burning muscle. It's paring muscle down. It's adapting. It's, it's, it's making its calorie burning engine smaller so that it can match the calories coming in. That's what your body's always trying to do. It's trying to match what's coming in. Now, there is a form of exercise that does the opposite. Strength training, resistance training, okay? Strength training and resistance training, although... 
in an hour of, you know, you could train like a bodybuilder for an hour. You're not going to burn nearly as many calories in that hour as you will going on a run or a bike ride. That doesn't matter. What matters is the adaptation. What strength training does is it tells the body, we need muscle. We need strength. The side effect of which being a less efficient metabolism and metabolism that burns more calories. And so when you do something like that, you actually teach the body through adaptation to have a faster metabolism. Now in modern societies, okay, now 50,000 years ago, you don't necessarily want a super hot, fast burning metabolism. That's a liability. I only can find 1500 calories a day. I don't want a metabolism that burns 3000 calories, but we live in modern societies where food is very, very easily accessible, hyper palatable, very convenient. Um, we don't move much on top of it. Uh, fast metabolism is, a, is an asset. Like if I could snap my fingers right now and boost everybody's natural metabolism by 50%, we would solve the obesity epidemic, right? We would, we would see incredible progress in health. So strength training does that. It, it speeds up the metabolism. It's almost like, it's funny. I had a, um, a listener um, write in, they were, they're an investor. And they said, you know, when you talk about muscle and strength training, he's like, that's how I talk to people about money. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you can try earning money or you can take your money and then invest it so that it makes money for you. He goes, that's what it's like when you build muscle, it's burning calories for you. So, oh yeah, that's exactly what it's like. So we've been led down the wrong path to look at exercises, calorie burning, and to completely ignore what those adaptations are. And then to take it even a step further, you know, you brought up uh, that a large percentage of your audience is women. Women have been um, lied to the most uh, by the fitness industry. There's, there's two reasons why women are the consumers. We know this for most markets, women are the largest consumers. So they're going to get marketed to the most. And number two, gyms uh, had to figure out how to get women in their doors when historically they were places where guys hung out when they first started out, right? Like gyms were not friendly to women. It was just dudes. And it was, and what we knew about them was, you know, the beach muscle movies of the fifties and sixties, these big dumb bodybuilders. And then, you know, then you had pumping iron. And Pump, I was going to say pumping iron. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, so women are like, yeah, I'm not going to look like, yeah, I'm not trying to look like that. And it doesn't mm -hmm. seem like a very friendly place. And so what gyms did is they, you know, um, created words like toned, uh, which, you know, that word existed before, but not the way the fitness industry used it. They say you're going to tone muscle, which is you don't tone your muscle, you build them. <laughs> I have to, if I just have to, this is one, this gives me like, I, I get a little twitch when I hear that word, because this is not the way that we describe like muscle. Either you have, when we talk about tone, it's, you're actually commenting on the neurological health. Yes. So you either can be hypertonic, hypotonic, that's tone. It's tone of the nervous system, usually the peripheral nervous system, but it can also yes. be axial as well. It can also be central. Uh, I hate this word toned uh, when we talk about women, but like in terms of communicating to, um, you know, anytime I've ever tried to say, well, that's actually a way that you describe nerves. People are like, what? That's not, that's yeah. not what I mean. I want to look like the girl on, you know, shape magazine or whatever, or oxygen or whatever it is. Yeah. Cause, because building muscle sounds like, Oh, I don't want to look like uh, Arnold right. Schwarzenegger. Right. So so they created this word tone. Hey, ladies, come to our gym. Um, don't lift heavy. Do 5,000 reps with two pound dumbbells and do all of our classes and get on the treadmill and you'll build toned lean muscle or long lean muscle, which that annoys me too, because. Oh, long. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Make your muscles longer. I hate to no, tell you. You can't do that. Attachments yeah. are the way, <laughs> unless you surgically <laughs> remove 
And I don't recommend you do that. So, um, but so they, they did this, right. They, and I remember as a trainer, by the way, um, when I first became a trainer, I was a, I was a kid, I was nine, 1997. And I walked into the gym that I worked out at and I finally turned 18. I was old enough to be a trainer. I applied, I got hired. And I remember going into the women's area for the first time because they had a women's area with machines. And I remember even then as a kid thinking how ridiculous it was the same machines that they had in the regular workout floor. The difference was the upholstery on it was pink. That was the difference. And the dumbbells only went up to 10 pounds and they were also pink. And I remember even thinking then how condescending, like you, like you just make it pink and now it's for women. And I remember even thinking then like, man, they lie. They really do lie. Yeah. Uh, and they do it quite effectively. No, women should not be afraid of, of, of lifting weights. You're not going to build huge, massive muscles. What you will do is speed up your metabolism and through the process, here's my favorite part. And just, I love communicating this. When you send signals to your body to adapt and your body and everything is working and it's adapting in whatever way you're, you're telling it to, it organizes its hormones in a way to do so. So what do I mean by that? If I tell my body to build muscle, and I feed my body appropriately. So it's got the, the building blocks to build the muscle. And I'm not under too much stress. And I'm getting good sleep. So everything's good. What my, as a man, what my body will do is say, okay, we're ready to build muscle. What hormones build muscle? Testosterone. What other hormones can help? Growth hormone. What else? Let's become more sensitive to insulin, right? In women, you see a balance of estrogen and progesterone. You see cortisol balance, right? Happening better. Because high cortisol not very good for muscle, right? Low cortisol, low energy, you get this nice balance, right? So your hormones actually, because everybody's trying to get this youthful hormone profile. How do I get my youthful hormones, right? Well, here's what you do. One of the easiest ways to do it is get your body to build muscle because all the hormones that do that and all those hormone profiles that do that are the youthful ones that go into building muscle. And you end up feeling that way. You end up feeling better. Now on the flip side, I talked earlier about how just tons and tons and tons of cardio plus calorie restriction will cause the body to pare muscle down. Your body will also do that in the opposite direction. If I tell my body to burn muscle, not burn muscle, sorry, pare muscle down, it's going to organize its hormones to do so. In men, lower testosterone. And you see this in studies. In women, higher cortisol, imbalance of estrogen and progesterone, right? You start to see the hormones organize themselves in that way. By the way, when your body's trying to become more efficient with calories, it also starts to learn how to store body fat better. It actually starts to become a better fat storage uh, machine. So if you train the wrong way or you use the wrong approach, what you'll actually end up doing is this. And I'm about to illustrate what probably 99% of your audience has probably felt before, right? You're ready to lose 30 pounds. You jump on the treadmill. You cut your calories. Lost 10 pounds real fast. Oops, I plateaued. Okay, now what do I do? I know more cardio, less calories. Oh, lost another 10 pounds, plateaued again. What do I do now? Oh, can I do more cardio? All right, I think I can. Can I cut my calories more? I think I could get down to a thousand calories. Oh, now I'm down to 30 pounds weight loss. I'm eating a thousand calories a day and I'm running six days a week. I can't maintain this. This is crazy. And I'm miserable. And it sucks, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, if you do it the other way, like I'm talking about, if you fuel your body properly, do some strength training, the weight loss is a little slower. And Part of that's because you're, you're, you may be losing some fat, but you also may, building, may be building some muscle. By the way, if everybody watching this lost 10 pounds of body fat and replaced it with 10 pounds of muscle, they would be smaller. Muscle is, is I think it takes up 
something like a, a quarter less space than body fat does. So you'd lose a quarter size, right? Just, and you'd weigh the same, right? But if you did it the right way, you would notice that your fat loss snowballs. And then, and this is a very realistic thing. I've had this happen quite a few times with clients. At the end of your weight loss journey, you're eating more than you did when you walked into it. And now you can maintain that. Like how, how much easier is that to maintain, right? It's a lot, lot easier. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. One of the things I, I wanted to add, um, to your, what you just said was testosterone for women as well. Like we often will say, you know, estrogen is sort of like phenotypically female. And of course we do have more relative in terms of our concentrations, um, with, uh, you know, versus our male counterparts, but we often disregard testosterone in women. And, you know, as you were saying, it's involved in, um, you know, hyper like maintenance of our muscle. It's involved in libido. It's involved in mental health and clarity. And when we talk about these you know, women in particular, the women that I, you know, cause I'm, I'm in there, like I'm in my mid forties. So I have, you know, women in perimenopause that are like, how do you not have hot, 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 and how do you, you know, how are you living your life? And so that I can maybe emulate that. What we don't consider for women is the, you know, the brain effects, let's say, as well as the physical effects that testosterone has in the body. And one of the more natural women, mean, of course, you can always have uh, TRT, which is like, you know, still controversial for women um, and maybe a separate discussion, but one of the natural ways to improve libido, uh, you know, for women who are in perimenopause, some of the things that I'm often told is like pain during sex, or even at, you know, when testosterone is really low in women, like painful orgasms, like they really, it's very, very uncomfortable for that, for that tissue to contract. Mm. So I think it's also really important as a natural means for improving our testosterone levels. And as you're saying, I promise you, you're not going to turn into the Hulk. Like I, I competed in figure, uh, like figure competitions, um, before I had my boys and like, my goal was hypertrophy. Like I yeah. was like packing on the plates on, like I wanted to get big and I was working at it several times a week, long hours in the gym. And it's, 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 I mean, may, of course there's outliers. There's going to be some women who are more genetically, uh, let's say inclined to uh, be able to have that type of morphology, but for 90%, 99% of women, that's not going to happen. And that's part of the lie. I think that we've been told like, with, yes. like I, I love pumping iron. Like I love, you know, but that's not my, that's not going to be me. I'm never no. going to look like that. I'm so yeah. glad you said that. Um, so two things. Yes. Testosterone is a female hormone, just like it's a male hormone. I'm so glad you said that just like estrogen is a male hormone as well. In fact, I have a, a friend who, um, he competed as a professional bodybuilder and through the process used anabolic steroids, got to the point where his body just didn't produce testosterone and had to go on uh, testosterone replacement therapy, 
was on it, felt better, and then started to feel really, really bad. Couldn't figure out what was going on. Felt depressed and whatever, even though he was taking testosterone. Got checked. His estrogen was too low because he was also taking an estrogen blocker, an estrozole. Mm -hmm. And the doctor's like, you need your, your estrogen to be higher. So same thing for women. The right balance of testosterone to estrogen is going to make you feel great. No testosterone makes you feel terrible, just like it does in a man. Just like no estrogen in a man would make him feel terrible. Now, to what you were saying about building muscle, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna just hammer that home, okay? I talked earlier about, like, if I lived in the NBA and saw everybody there, I would see, I would think everybody was seven feet tall. Okay. In real life, I'm going to ask you a question. In real life, forget watching a professional basketball game. I'm talking about you go to the grocery store, you go to the gym, you go to the airport, whatever. How many times in your life have you ever seen someone that's seven feet tall? It was one time and I met Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, okay. <laughs> who is an NBA. You, know, who's you like, remember um, it because yeah, it was so yeah. rare, right? In yeah, your entire yeah. life, you saw somebody. Just once, yeah. That's seven feet tall. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's that's how rare the muscle building genetics of bodybuilders uh, and female bodybuilders and male bodybuilders are. So if there's a spectrum way over here, you have, uh, you know, musculoskeletal issues, medical issues, like people that, that have to get treated because you know, they're, they're just not well. And way over here, you have the, you know, genetically gifted muscle builders uh, akin to people who are seven feet tall. Okay. Super, super rare. Okay. Most everybody is in the middle. Okay. Meaning no matter how hard you train, I tell you what, you can even take all the steroids you want. You're not going to look like a professional bodybuilder. That's a true story, right? That's how rare those genetics are. So don't worry about that. In fact, if you are that person with those super rare genetics, you know, you know, you probably don't even work out and you look like you lift a lot of weights all the time, right? That's not you. The, you can train as hard as you want. You can train like a bodybuilder. You can do it for years and years and years. And what you'll achieve is a sculpted physique, fast metabolism. You'll get the body that you're looking for. You'll get the body that you look, you, that you say, oh, that's what happens when you run a lot. No, that's actually what happens when you lift weights. Right. All the time. So, and, and by the way, let's say, you know, for you're, you're one in a billion and you do work out and, oh my gosh, I build muscle really, really fast. Okay. It's not going to happen overnight. I used to have clients tell me this, like, well, what happens if I get too muscular? So, so you tell me <laughs> when you think you're too muscular and then we'll like scale it back. Don't worry right. about it. We'll just maintain at that point, which by the way, studies show that the amount of volume and training it takes to build muscle, about one ninth of that is is required to maintain. Here's one of the beauties of resistance training right. is maintaining muscle is easy. Building it's a little harder. Maintaining it is quite easy. There's also something called muscle memory, which is a real documented phenomenon, meaning if it takes you a year to build five pounds of, of calorie burning sculpted muscle, and, and that's a, a year of consistent training, and then you, for whatever reason, stop working out for two or three months um, and you lose it, you'll gain it back in a month or two. It, it comes back so much faster than the first time. So training your body through strength training, although there's no such thing as permanent fitness results, it lends itself really well to modern life because most everyday people, even those that are consistent, are going to miss a week if their kids are sick or something happens or they're going to miss a month or whatever. It's the results stick around much longer and they're easier to come back. So it's, it's just really, really good form of exercise for the context of modern life. It's really, really effective. And you don't need to do a lot of it, by the way. The average person, for what they're looking for, two to three days a week will get you very far. Like, that's it. Two to three days a week, you'll get the metabolism boosting. You'll get the sculpt. 
you'll it, you'll you'll get strong like you you'll feel amazing you don't need to do it all the time to get a uh, great result now if you want to eventually you can but two or three days i mean i i had no clients that i trained more than that i maybe like a few and these were people that eventually became trainers but most people two three days a week consistent with me and they were just like so happy with the success they had let's um let's double click on uh, some of the maybe we'll call them off target uh benefits of training. And I was saying this to you in the pre-chat before we started recording, you know, we're talking about building, a, you know, building a physique, sculpting, like in a state of, of, you know, muscle hypertrophy, healing your metabolism, helping your hormones, which are all amazing. And I think why, you know, maybe 90% of people might be interested in uh, strength training at all. But one of the things that, one of the unexpected gifts, I'll say that strength training in, in particular has given me is the mental health benefits. So my ability to focus, my ability to regulate my emotions, you know, sleep of course is is part of that conversation. And I think that it's not discussed enough. Like we I mean I'm I'm super happy to talk about like one of my questions that I want to ask you is, you know, why women seem to and you know, maybe we can say it's culturally why we seem to perseverate on fat loss. Like can we do fat loss and muscle building at the same time? Like that's one of the <laughs> most common questions I get asked and I'll ask you that in a moment, but before we get there, I, can you speak a little bit about some of the brain benefits, um, some of the central nervous system benefits that we can um, impart through something like a regular strength training uh, regimen? Yeah, you know, uh, you'll, get, you'll, you'll gain a lot of wisdom by asking somebody who's been consistent with exercise for over 10 years. If you ask them the following question, why do you still do it? What makes you do this all the time? Nine out of 10 of them will say, oh, it's the, it's the mental benefits. Like I do it because I love it. It makes me feel good. Like almost none of them will say, oh, I like the way it makes me look. I like to be ripped or whatever. After you do it for a long period of time, that's what you really start to value because that's what you really see. Uh, that's where you really see the value. It's, it's quite tremendous. Okay. The brain is a part of the body. So a more fit, healthy body means your brain is going to be just physically healthier. Muscle is very insulin sensitive. So one of the easiest ways to improve someone's insulin sensitivity is to have them gain a little bit of muscle. In fact, there's studies on the severely obese where they don't even have them lose weight. They just gain a little bit of muscle and you see these great improvements um, in insulin sensitivity. Well, the brain really benefits from this tremendously. I mean, there's researchers that will even refer to dementia and Alzheimer's as type three diabetes, right? Uh, you see improvements in cognition with people who have dementia when they go on a ketogenic diet, probably for that reason, probably because of their their bodies, I guess, either inability or, or lack of efficiency in using, um, you know, glucose uh, as energy, right? So, so that happens physically as well. But I think there's a lot more psychological stuff that's happening. Exercise, number one, changes your relationship to pain. Okay. So I've been doing this for a long time. I've been working out for a long time. When I work out, I feel the same pain as a beginner, maybe even more pain than a beginner does. It doesn't bother me nearly as much though, because I've developed the relationship through practice with pain. How does that carry over into everyday life? I mean, you, you tell me when you get, when you learn how to be comfortable with pain, that's not like really hurting you or going to kill you. It makes a lot of things a lot easier. doesn't mean you don't feel it. It just means it changes your relationship. Here's another one. Acceptance. Okay body acceptance, or just accepting yourself. I'm gonna tell you something right now. If you work out long enough, you will learn the hard lesson of acceptance, because you will learn 
You're never going to look like that person who's perfect. You will learn, man, I'm never going to, you know, get 20 inch arms, or I'm never going to be able to run a mile in, uh, you know, under six minutes, or I'm never going to get, you know, look perfect because that's impossible. But you still stick to it. So eventually what happens is you accept, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I do. You also learn how to persevere through failure. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't care who you are. You're going to suck at any exercise you do the first time. You're going to suck at it the first hundred times that you do it. Okay. Well, if you stick to exercise long enough, you learn to embrace the fact that you suck at something. You actually start to embrace the fact that you can get better at something. Does that carry over into everyday life? Oh, you absolutely. What about the discipline, right? What do I, what do I mean by discipline? Just the consistency, just the, this is what I do. And I do it no matter what. And I modify it depending on how I feel. But for the most part, I show up and I do this. Does that carry over into everyday life? Absolutely. You know, I used to love, uh, my favorite demographic of people to train were people in advanced age. I used to love people in advanced age because they were so wise and I would learn so much from them and they got so much from exercise. But my second favorite demographic were kids. I loved training kids, uh, you know, under the age of like 17. Now, it wasn't because they were fun to train. I'm going to be honest with you. Training kids is a pain in the butt. It's really hard. It's hard to keep them focused. They're, they're, you you got to entertain them half the time. And it's, it's, a, it's much more challenging. You got to be on your game, right, as a trainer. So you can't kind of relax while you're training a kid. But it's rewarding because you see the, the, the development in their, uh, their, their personal development through exercise. Like I remember, I remember one time, I'll never forget this. One of my, this was actually my, I want to say my second or third year as a trainer. So I was still new, still young. And I had these parents come in with this kid. He was overweight. He was 15 years old and he got his parents to take him to the gym and was interested in maybe starting to work out. And he was so shy and really didn't speak up much. And I could tell the parents were very supportive. And, you know, at one point the kid, I could tell he almost got emotional because we were talking, because I asked him his goals and, you know, why he's here. And he had brought up that, uh, you know, he, he, wanted to wear a t-shirt at the pool party that he went to and I could tell he was getting emotional. So I really wanted to train this kid. So I did, I started training him. And I remember, I don't know, it was a couple months into training and I would, after he'd work out, I'd have him sign off on his workout log. And I did it on purpose because I was going to use it to, to show him like his improvements. Cause sometimes you'll tell a client, Oh my gosh, you did 10 pushups. That's really good. And they'll be like, well, how many did you do last time? Right. So I wanted to have him sign stuff so he could see. And I remember he was like, you know, it was like the first time this happened. I would go, hey, you know, John, you did, you did eight pushups today. Do you know how many you did last week? And I'll pull it out and I'll say, you did six. And he's like, wow, I did two more. I said, no, no, no. I said, you don't understand. I said, you're not the same person. The person you were before could only do six. You were a different person. You could do eight today. And the look on his face and the way he felt about himself, right? This kid's, uh, his personality. Anyway, he ended up becoming a personal trainer. Uh, because it had such an impact on him. But these are the lessons that you, you learn through exercise and the consistency. So yes, it makes your brain healthy. Uh, studies will show that um, in comparison to antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication for mild to moderate forms of depression, the most common forms of depression, and anxiety, it's either as effective or possibly even more effective than the most common medications, especially as you look down the timeline, you know, as the timeline of how long you take medication goes or how long you exercise, you actually start to see that exercise 
becomes a little bit more superior. There's no down regulation of receptors. There's no remodeling of the brain like you see with medications. If anything, things start to improve uh, better and better. Um, and then again, just the self-care aspect, the the relationship to pain, the dealing with the fact that I suck at this exercise, but I do it anyway, the body acceptance, um, all those things make it such an incredible, it's the sneakiest, and I mean this in a positive way, it's the sneakiest, most unassuming form of personal growth that I can think of. And I say sneaky because nobody goes into it thinking that way, right? They don't, they don't go into it thinking, it's not like a motivational course or like a spiritual practice with like, I'm going to become a better person. They're like, I'm just going to lose weight and get in shape. But then they stick to it long enough and you're like, oh man, I'm, this is making me just a better person just through the process of, you know, what you have to do in order to do this. So it's, it's to me, I'm not shocked at all when I see the studies that come out that say, I, I know that the, uh, you know, and, and we're behind, but it's, it's starting to catch up. Um, I know that our medical system is now considering exercise as a, a, as a form of therapy for depression and anxiety because it's just so damn effective as they should. Yeah. As they yeah. should. So yeah. it's not shocking to me. I mean, I've seen this for, for years. It did it for me as a kid. That's why I started working out. So um, yeah, th those mental benefits really are incredible. And if you, if you, again, if you go into it from a point of self-care, you'll do it in a more appropriate way. Once you really start to notice those mental and psychological benefits, uh, the, the, the physical results take care of themselves because now you're just, you're doing it. You enjoy it. It's something that's working for you. You feel good wow, I'm taking care of myself. And then next thing you know, you're like, oh, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm leaner. Oh, yeah, I look better. Oh, I feel better. But, you know, that's actually what's more important is the fact that I enjoy what I do and that I'm taking care of myself. And that's, that's the place you want to get to for long-term success. Yeah, and I have so many women that will say, I, I trust myself again. Yeah. Like I've, I've made like this appointment with myself. It's every morning at whatever, 7 a.m. And that and for me, I've also noticed like I have an appointment with myself like four to five times a week. I have, you know, I've since the pandemic, blah, blah, blah. I have like my own home gym. I don't go to the gym anymore. Um, and I to your point around discipline, like I always I, ha I have average genetics, but I have above average discipline because that and that has been the gift. I think that resistance training for so many years has given me. And yes, I started yeah, maybe similar to you. Like I was like, I want to look good in a bikini in the summer. Like that's why I started the training. Um, but I'm in it now, um, for some of these health benefits because I need to be sharp and I need to be on and I need to be able to focus on what you're saying, for example, right now. And I have to be thinking about what's the next question, where is this conversation? Yeah. You know, all of those different things that I think, um, you know, when you're thinking about aging well, which we're all, you know, we're, all, like every minute, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're all getting older, but how do we want to, um, you know, there's conversation around like lifespan extension. And while I think that's interesting, I think it can be uh, controversial. I think like, how is it, how can we actually live? Like, even if I only make it to 73 or 77 or whatever it is that, you know, females are projected to like the average, how can I make those 77 years like freaking awesome? Yes. And, Part of that is a big part of that is my training regime. Yes. Speaking of which, right. Um, I remember I, I used to train a lot of uh, surgeons at one point because I had my I had a studio that was next to a hospital and I trained one and then they started referring their friends and I would train all these surgeons. I loved asking them questions about, uh, you know, what they did and who they worked with. And I remember hearing this comment from one of my surgeon clients and he said, you know, uh, here's here's what happens to the older population they break a hip and then they die of pneumonia. I remember going, what? He goes, oh yeah. He goes, 
if they once they break a hip or a bone, then you see this rapid decline in their health, rapid decline, uh, you know, in, in just their total well-being and their mental health, right? Strength training buffers against a lot of that. It's actually the, the most, there's nothing more effective at building bone strength than strength strength. Nothing comes close to doing it, building strength, building muscle, building bone, maintaining mobility. But you know, we talked about acceptance with exercise. I'm gonna tell you, here's the key. And this is, I think the key to, to aging, because I don't care how fit and awesome you are with your exercise and diet, you're gonna get older, you're gonna get wrinkles, you're not gonna look the same. You're eventually gonna have to learn to accept that as well. And that's, again, one of those lessons that you get from exercise. And then talking about women, I'll tell you, and I didn't get this until I became a little older. I had uh, a client that I trained uh, later on in my years. Uh, this, she was a very accomplished executive, very successful, very petite woman. And she'd never worked out uh, with strength training, but she'd always done things like yoga in classes. And so she came and she hired me as a referral from a friend and we started strength training. And she, she had gone off on a business trip. She would go off on business trips quite often. She comes back and she's just beaming. And I'm like, you know, what, Kelly, what happened? Like, why are you so, you seem so happy. She goes, I feel so empowered. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, I, I have this carry on luggage that I take with me. And she goes, and I'm small. And she goes, and every single time I have to put it in the overhead compartment, I have to ask a dude to help me lift it. She's like, I did it myself. I lifted it up. I didn't even think about it until I sat down. I said, oh, I did that all by myself. Strength, especially for women, is incredibly empowering. Men take this for granted. We're just naturally physically bigger and stronger. But as a woman, when you're stronger and you can do everyday things and you don't have to ask a guy to do it for you, that's a very empowering. I can't, there's almost nothing more empowering than feeling strong and able in your body. Strength does that. Strength will do that for you. So if you're a lady and you're watching this, if you get stronger, watch how you feel, watch how you walk around and do things and carry things. It, it's a, it's a pretty good feeling. One of the things that um, pops up in my everyday life is my, on my um, fiance side, there's uh, you know, they're Italian. They like to make their sauces every year, like the tomato sauce. We like, they do it in the garage and they have all the things. We do and the then, same thing. <laughs> okay. So they, and then at the end, of course they boil the jars like to seal yeah. them. And of course now I have, I don't know how many hundreds of jars of, of sugo of tomato sauce in my, um, in my uh, pantry. And I can like, I don't even think about it. I go and I open up, you know, I open up the suit, I open up the tomato jar and all these little things like the, the overhead compartment. Um, one of the things I like to uh, test when I, when I had a physical practice, I would test a woman doing, you know, we'd have a whole intake and a whole process, but one of them was grip strength because that's one of the biggest predictors of longevity. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when we're talking about opening up a jar of tomato sauce or how long you can hang, let's say, uh, like how long you can uh, just dead hang. Um, and then the other is push-ups. So I would always say push-ups, but not on your knees. Like I, I, and I, you know, just maybe it's just a me thing, but I hate that those are called women's push-ups. Yep. It's like yep. a push-up is a mother effing push-up. It's on your toes. That's how we do them. And I'm okay if that's a progression, like that's an intermediate, you know, as you're starting out, if you've never done it before, certainly get on your knees, but the goal shouldn't be to stay there. The goal should be to move towards your toes because we want to, especially for women, upper body strength is a big thing as you were mm -hmm. mentioning. Um, so let's talk a little bit about strength because often, and I sort of pre-framed it a bit before I'll have women say to me, I want to lose fat. Uh, like I want to lose weight. What will they say? I want to lose weight. What they really mean is I want to reduce my total adipose, like my adipose tissue. I don't want to lose brain 
yeah. weight or bone weight or whatever. One of the things that I have found really helpful is shifting the focus away from weight loss or fat loss. We can certainly focus on it, but I like to focus on performance. I like to focus on like the PRs that you were talking about with your, uh, with your teenager who did like, you're a different person now because you did eight this week. And like last week you did six. Can you talk to some of the maybe reframes, uh, you know, psychological reframes maybe that we can be speaking to our, at least female patients, but certainly anyone um, around, yes, maybe fat loss is an, is an admirable goal to work towards, but can we also add in a few other objectives, a few other lifestyle objectives, like being able to put the overhead compartment or the other one that I like to do is like, can you stand up from a seated position, like on the floor without using your hands? Because I want, like, I think about my life and I want to be the favorite grandmother. Like that's my, like, that's what I'm working towards. So I want to be able to get down on the floor with the toddler and play with the, and run after the baby and all those different things. So can, can you speak a little bit about reframing goals? Yeah. Yeah. For, I want to comment also real quick on what you said about the grip strength test. You know, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people don't know that, that that is a better, a sing, that single metric is a better predictor of all cause mortality than almost any other single metric, just to show you how important physical strength is and what that tells you about your, about your health. Okay. So got, you asked the best questions. You're bringing up lots of memories. So I, I remember, uh, I don't know how many years into training this was. It wasn't very, very long, but I had this, uh, this woman that I trained and then she wanted to bring me her daughter to train. Her daughter was in her twenties and she was recovering from, uh, anorexia. And so she said, Sal, I want to bring you my daughter. It's been recommended that she do some strength training, but, um, she is recovering from anorexia. And I said, okay. I said, I've never worked with anybody with eating disorder. So if it's okay, I'd like to to call her therapist and talk to her therapist about appropriate ways to approach nutrition. I want to be very careful, right? I don't want to, you know, cause I know fitness can actually push people into dysfunction as well because you start to become body obsessed. Right. So I did, I talked to this therapist and she was, she was wonderful. And she said, don't, um, she said, focus on her performance. Just talk about how strong she is. And I thought that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant because you can't starve yourself and malnourish yourself and get stronger. It just doesn't work that way. So that's what I did. I trained her and it was all about uh, how strong she was, how, you know, how much she could squat, how many reps she could do in pushups and if she could do a pull-up. And it was exceptional uh, how well it worked. And then I started to apply that to many of my clients and in particular women, women are, are men also can get pretty body focused. Uh, but oftentimes women, this is what they're really focused on. It's like, I just want to look a particular way. And you can do a lot of things wrong by being body focused. You could starve yourself. You could overtrain. You could uh, malnourish yourself because you're so focused on the scale or how your pants fit or how small you feel. But it's really hard. Not saying it's impossible because it's also possible. It's very hard to do a lot of wrong things and get stronger. You have to at least feed yourself properly. You can't overtrain and get stronger. You can't undertrain and get strong. Like you got to train appropriately to get stronger. Um, so performance is an amazing metric. So if you gauge your progress through your performance, especially for the first few years of training, because at some point you're not going to get any stronger at some point, but at least the first three years of training, if you're focused on how strong can I get, how mobile can I get, uh, how many push-ups I can do, what's my stamina like, if you focus on those things, the physical results will follow. 
right? You'll, 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 you'll get that side effect of getting leaner, the side effect of, of sculpting and shaping your body through performance. If it's body focused, you can oftentimes go the wrong direction. And, um, and then, you know, it's, it's hard to reverse out of that. So I love performance uh, as a metric. I often focus on that, especially uh, with my female clients. It was like, they'd come to me and say, I want to lose 20 pounds. And I'd say, that's wonderful, but here's what we're going to do for the first three months. I'm going to try and get you really strong. And they say, well, why? And I talk about metabolism, all that stuff. And luckily I'm very convincing. So I'd get them to trust me. And I'd say, just trust me. We're just going to see how strong we can get you. And then at the end of three months, I think you'll be, you'll be pleased. And they always were, they always were. And then, and then also focus on performance is fun. It's really fun. It's, it doesn't feel as negative. It's like, it's very empowering. It's just a great feeling. It's different than like, and you talked about the scale, man, the scale is, uh, I mean, I, so I used to love doing this, right? So when I used to, I, there was one gym that I, I managed for a while in San Jose over here. And one of my jobs as a, as a general manager was I was also responsible for the sales, uh, how many memberships we sell and, and training, all that stuff. And I had this really effective technique that I would use sometimes. And I would do this anytime I had a, a potential member come in, especially a woman who was apprehensive to, you know, the, the machines and the weights in the gym, right? So I'd take someone through, I want to lose weight. And they'd be like, I just want to do the classes. I just want to do the cardio. I don't want to build muscle. I don't want to get bigger. I don't want to whatever. And I'd talk to them about the benefits. And again, I can be pretty convincing, but we'd get back to my office and they would no, I don't, don't want to lift weights or whatever. I'd say, no problem. And then I'd say this, I'd do this thing. I'd say, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bring in one of my female trainers. And if you can guess her body weight within 15 pounds, I'll give you a free membership for two months. If you can't, uh, then we'll talk about maybe the benefits of, of strength training. And they would all take that bet. I mean, everybody's like, I could guess within 15 pounds. So then I would get on my intercom and attention staff, so-and-so come to Sal's office and in would walk in. There was one uh, girl in particular I, I'm thinking about would come in and she was this five foot two, you know, uh, very lean, probably 15% body fat, sculpted physique. And she'd walk in and they'd all guess that she was like 90 pounds. Oh, she weighs 90 pounds. And I'd have a scale in my, in my office and I'd have her stand on the scale and you know, she's 130 pounds and they would be just mind blown. How does she weigh 130 pounds? And I'd say, she's got a lot of muscle. It's muscle is not, does not take up a lot of space. And then I would add the cherry on top and I'd say, you know, tell, can you tell this person what you eat on a regular basis? And she'd say, oh, for <laughs> breakfast, I had, you know, four egg omelet and three slices of soap, you know, sourdough toast. And then for lunch, I had a burrito from Chipotle or whatever. And they would be blown away and I'd say, her metabolism is on fire. Like that's, the, that's where we want to get. Uh, with exercise, but yeah, the, the chasing performance um, is a great way to, to, to build a good relationship with exercise. It's a, it's a great place to start. Yeah. And I think the, um, you know, even just, you know, one click further with the strength, like it's really empowering as a woman, like there's been times, and this is, I've never said this publicly, but I'll just, I'll share it with you. And I'm sure I'm going to get some, someone's going to write me an email about how inappropriate this is, but there's been times where like me and my uh, fiance, maybe we'll go to, you know, we'll go for dinner and then we'll go for a walk after that's sort of what we like to do, eat and then walk around the area. And there's, you know, there's been times where we'll be looking at the people that are passing us on the street. And as a woman, you know, I remember once saying to, to Giovanni, uh, my fiance's name, I said, to, I had, I said, you know, Gio, I could take, like, if I met any of these guys in an alley, like it wouldn't be my wallet. That would be like, I would, <laughs> I would be so fine with seeing like, you know, 90, 80 to 90%, you know, maybe the taller guys, maybe the height disadvantage, sure, whatever. Sure. 
But I think that there's something really um, wonderful about strength in a woman. And yes, yes. I'm never going to be as strong as you, right? I don't have the testosterone profile, et cetera. But isn't it really nice to know that in a situation, like in, in maybe a negative situation, that you would be better off being able to defend yourself, um, which, you know, maybe is... I don't know. Maybe that's inappropriate, but I, I took a lot of pleasure from that. I was like, I could take these, I could well, take these guys. Well, you feel capable. You know, yeah. I remember having this conversation um, years ago where, uh, you know, I was talking to one of my, my members who would come in very regularly and she would talk about how um, she went to go work out at some other, uh, some other gym. She was out of town and she goes, Oh, so she's like, I hated it. So why? She goes, you know, guys would comment, you know, and, and I just felt uncomfortable and then jokingly, I laughed and I said, yeah, if, you know, if I was at a gym and women were commenting, I think it was kind of cool. And she said, would you if it was guys that were commenting to you? And I said, no. And she goes, why? And I said, well, it's not because I'm not attracted to guys, although I'm not. I said, it's because they're a threat. Like, if a guy says something to me uh, and, they, and if they want, you know, they want to attack me, I'm, it's more of a threat. Woman says something to me. She could be lewd. She could make a comment. As a man, I feel zero threat. So it's all compliment. Oh, she thinks I'm whatever, but I don't fear her. Right. But as a woman, you're, you're, you know, 50% of the population, you know, theoretically is, is bigger and stronger than you. So forget the objective, like, can I, or can't I, you feel more capable. That's a great feeling. Strength does that. When you go to the gym and you just squatted 135 pounds and you just did five pull-ups, you're walking around and you just feel more capable. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be stupid and go start a fight with some guy or be whatever. Obviously, you want to act like a nice human and be safe, but you feel empowered. That, I mean, you can't, that, there's there's no amount of money that, that is worth that feeling. It's a great feeling to feel empowered. So uh, 100% back what you're saying. But I do caution you, don't, don't beat up people. <laughs> <laughs> I will take that advice. Thank you. <laughs> So as we're, t when we talk about reframing, let's say strength and performance in, in, you know, if you're thinking about weightlifting and resistance training, how can we transition that as well to our relationship with food? Because a bit, you know, we've said it a couple of times, we sort of danced around nutrition. Of course, you need to give your body the building blocks. And so often it's this punitive, like I have to lose weight. So I'm going to, you know, have some sort of calorically restrictive diet. And like, if, if there's one hill I want to die on, it's to get women off of these freaking 1200 calorie diets. Like I'm okay. If you're about to do a show and like, you know, you've been training and you're, you know, this is like, you're dieting down and there's a reverse diet on the horizon. But I have had so many women come to me that are like, I've been doing 1200, like 1200, 1100, 1200 calories for decades. I don't know why I can't, you know, and now I'm 45 and now I'm gaining weight. I don't know why. So is there a, is there a pivot that we might be able to look at our relationship with food a little differently in the same way that you've been describing for uh, resistance training? Yeah, this is the hard one. Uh, nutrition is way more challenging and complex than, than exercise. Uh, exercise, you know, if you're consistent, you do a decent program, you're working out two or three days a week appropriately. You're on point. Nutrition's with us. Um, our diet's with us all day long. And as I said earlier in this, uh, in, the, in our conversation, there's culture attached to it and emotion and behaviors. And so this is much more challenging. The big challenge is that we're, we, we, if you grow up in modern society, meaning, uh, you know, there's food isn't an issue that the value that we've placed on food has almost all been around how palatable the food is. This is pretty much how we value food, right? So you go talk to your friends, it's lunchtime. Hey, what do you guys want to eat for lunch? Oh, let's try Mexican. 
Uh, I don't feel like that. How about pizza? Uh, I don't feel, you know, what about Chinese? Yeah, let's get Chinese. Now, what are you basing your decision on? The palatability of the food. Now, palatability is a value that food provides us. So I don't want to say that that's something that, you know, we, we should uh, value. It's a real value, but we need to have more of a balanced understanding of food. And this is a practice and it takes a little while, but you can get it there. There's lots of values that that food will provide you. So I'll give you, um, I'll, I'll give you some examples of, of what I'm talking about. You know, I, I would talk to a client. I remember I had one client, for example, who this woman suffered from heartburn just daily. And I remember I would ask her, I did her questionnaire when she'd come in and, and I used to love doing this with clients. I'd say things like, um, you know, do you have any areas of pain on your body? And they'd say, no, but then I'd go down the body and do the checklist. What about your neck? What about your shoulder? And then of course they pop up. Oh yeah. My, my shoulder hurts. Oh yeah. My back hurts. So I'd say things like, uh, do you, do you have any digestive issues? No, I don't. I'd say, okay, do you take, um, do you take anything, any laxatives? Do you take anything for heartburn? Oh yeah. I take Tums every single day. It's like, okay. So you get heartburn in, in, in the afternoon. Well, eventually we identified that it was her morning bagel. Her morning bagel gave her heartburn and she's been eating it for years. She never connected the two. So the value that she placed on the bagel did not include very important information that it could cause her heartburn. Now through figuring that out, she stopped desiring the, the bagel as much because she's like, I don't, this heartburn sucks. And as much as I enjoy the taste of the bagel, I'd rather not have the heartburn, have to take Tums all the time. So she eventually switched that out for something else. So my point with that is that there's a lot of values around food. And the first step is identifying those uh, for yourself. So how do I feel before I eat this food? Am I sad? Am I happy? Am I excited? What's driving me to do this? Number two, how do I feel why I, while I eat it? How do I feel afterwards? Um, that will tell you some good information. I, and you'll start to pick up on some trends. Wow, when I'm stressed, this is what I reach for. When I'm bored, this is what I reach for. When I'm feeling good about myself, this is what I reach for. When I'm afterwards, when I eat these things, I'm tired, lethargic, irritable, or I have energy, or I feel bloated, um, or my digestion is off, or I'm constipated, or I have gas or whatever, right? So you start to identify certain things. You start to connect uh, certain dots. So that right there, that process will help. Um, and that will help, especially from a self-care standpoint, that will help you develop a good relationship where you start to eat the foods that serve you best, which means sometimes you'll eat the, the cookie or the slice of pizza, but most of the time you'll probably eat foods that are good for you physiologically. So you'll actually start to develop balance. Okay. And then this will happen. You'll go somewhere. Somebody's going to offer you a dessert and you're going to say, no, thanks. I don't want it. So, so what does that mean? That means, yeah, I know it's going to taste good. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge the flavor is going to be great. It's be very palatable, but I've identified that that makes me not feel very good. So I actually don't want it. I mean, what a great place to be, right? I don't want it. Or you're at your friend's house and you're, you know, their mom made the cake that you had when you were a kid and there brings it out. And you're like, eh, you know, that doesn't make me feel good, but man, we're bonding right now. And I haven't had this cake in years. She used to make it when we were younger. So yeah, I'll have this piece of cake. So you start to develop more balance through that process. The second thing that I tell people to focus on are to uh, create barriers between yourself and your impulses, just to create space for awareness. Okay. So an easy example would be um, identifying what your, I don't know what you want to, for lack of a better term, your trigger foods or the foods that you just, you just don't want to stop eating. Like for me, it's potato chips. If I have, especially Lay's potato chips, if there's Lay's potato chips anywhere around me, 
if I'm around it long enough, eventually I'm going to eat some and then I'm going to eat the whole thing. Okay. So I, I've identified that about myself. It's just so hyper palatable to me that it's very difficult for me to, to, uh, to abstain from it. And we all have these foods. So how do we create a barrier? Don't have it in the house, but that doesn't mean you can't eat it. Give yourself permission to eat it. You just got to drive to the grocery store and get yourself a single serving. So that's what I tell myself. If I really want a bag of potato chips, I'll get in my car, drive two miles down the road and grab myself a single serving of Lay's potato chips. Now, what that does is it creates a, a space for awareness. So I say, okay, I want the chips. All right, let me go put my pants on. Let me put my shoes on. Let me get in the car. You know, I really don't want it that bad. I think I'm not going to get it. Or I want it bad enough. I think I'll drive to the store, right? So you want to create, give yourself space to become aware because otherwise impulses, and these impulses become uh, somewhat unconscious. Like how many times have we eaten foods that are maybe trigger foods to us and then our stomach hurts and we just realize we overate. Oh, why did I do that? Like it's this bit of unawareness. So create those barriers between you and impulse foods. Also, number three, create more awareness around the process of eating. So what does that mean? Eliminate distractions. Uh, and studies show this. If you're on your phone, watching TV, uh, while you eat, you'll eat about 10 to 15% more calories. So when you eat, eat, no TV, no phone, no distractions, just me and my food. Don't tell yourself to eat less. Don't tell yourself anything. Just eat as you normally would. And studies will show that you'll eat less just because you're, you're not distracted. Another thing you can do is not drink water while you eat. Not drinking water forces you to chew your food more, allows those, those uh, signals of satiety to reach the brain. We all know what happens when you eat really fast. There's a, eating fast and eating and overeating both go hand in hand, almost always. When you overeat, it's also, you're eating very quickly. You're eating faster than your brain can process the, those signals of satiety, right? So not having water or fluid while I'm eating forces me to chew my food, slow down, and then I'm less likely to overeat. And then here's the last part. I don't tell people, I don't like telling people to cut out, uh, you know, cut your carbs out or cut your, you know, don't eat any fat or whatever. I don't like to necessarily do that because that uh, can very easily lead to kind of this dysfunctional relationship with food. But I will say this, if you are going to cut something out, cut out heavily processed foods. And here's why. It's not because they're inherently unhealthy, although most of them are. It's because they've been engineered to be so palatable that they actually overcome your body's systems of satiety. And there's some and studies have proven this now. So they've done some really good studies where they'll take groups of people in a controlled setting. One of the problem with nutrition and diet studies is they're, ob, they're often observational or um, survey-based. And those are notoriously inaccurate. So it's really hard to kind of pick out what's true and what's not true. Well, they've done studies with, high, with, with heavily processed foods, which by the way, these are foods that are in like wrappers and boxes and they have long shelf lives, right? That's so think, all the keto treats and the protein bar, all that, all the stuff that's also yes. marketed as healthy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's lots of heavily processed health foods as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so these are foods that are that lots of ingredients, long shelf life. So what they did is they took groups of people in, the, in a controlled setting and they put them, so they'll take, let's say 20 people, put them in this room, 20 people, put them in this room give them unlimited access to either whole natural foods or heavily processed foods. They also control for the macros, by the way. So they also make sure that it's like similar breakdown proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. 
Then they observe them. And then my favorite part is they cross them over. They take this group, put them in this room, put this group and put them in that room. And what they find, and this is, this was, this study to me is one of the most groundbreaking nutrition studies ever. What they found was that on average, when people eat heavily processed foods, they eat five to 600 more calories a day. On average, five to 600. That is, I mean, uh, again, it's more complex than this, but 500 calories a day, that's a pound of body fat a week, right? So it, uh, it's, a, it's, a big, uh, it's a big difference. We're not talking about small, by, and by the way, even small amounts of calories can add up over time, but five to 600 a day, that's how many calories I tell people to cut when they're trying to burn body fat, if they just want to know from a calories perspective, right? That just happens naturally. Heavily processed foods have been engineered. This is all the research and development that goes into heavily processed foods, goes into making them so palatable. And it's a combination of things. It's the flavor, salt, the, the, the texture, the sound it makes, the, the residue it leaves on your fingers, the smell, the color of the bag. Like they have really done, a, scientists have done a phenomenal job and making these foods so palatable that by the time your brain registers that you're full, you've exceeded how much food you've needed by about five to 600 calories. And just to, to hammer this home, a large bag, a large family size bag of Lay's potato chips contains about four to five potatoes. So if I gave the average person five plain baked potatoes, no salt, no butter, just plain potatoes, and said, eat this in 30 minutes, most people would not be able to do it. They would gag after the second one, right? But those same people could probably eat the whole bag of Lay's potato chips. And the Lay's potato chips has more calories because of the oil. So just to give an example, right? So one thing I used to do with clients, I used to love doing this, is I would say, rather than telling them to cut calories, because often that would backfire, I would say, I want you to eat as much as you, as you want. I just want you to not eat heavily processed foods. So eat as much as you want whole natural foods and just do that. And then they would trust me and they'd do it. And then they'd come back and be like, oh my God, I'm losing weight. What's going on? What's the magic with whole natural foods? You're actually eating less. You just don't realize it. But I'm so full. Yeah, I know. That's, that's what happens when you don't eat foods that are engineered to make you overeat. I think that's such an important message because we're all sort of looking, um, I think, in this sort of world of Uber Eats and Amazon Prime, you know, we're looking for the, you know, our body to show up in 24 hours or less, right? It's like, let me just order it on the phone and it'll be here. And I think that um, all of the constructs that you're talking about today are about playing the long game, um, which is like, and like I was saying, anyone can do anything for a short amount of time. We can all restrict, we can all have sort of a calorically restrictive, we can all do the cardio, we can all be miserable for about, let's say six months or whatever the time is uh, for the individual. But this is all about playing the long game, which is where I think, um, where I think it's at, where I like to play anyway. Um, just it's in the only game. There is no, there is no game other than the long game. I'm telling you right now, look, if you want to lose weight and gain it back and then some, don't do what I'm saying, right? If you want to lose it and it never come back, you want to deal with this anymore, do what I'm saying. This is the only way I'm telling you right now. The other option is to have an epiphany. Good luck with that. Like epiphanies don't happen. They're, they're rare. And if they do happen, it's like I had a heart attack. I almost died. Now I need to change everything. Otherwise, it's what I'm talking about. It's behavior modification, and it takes time, and that's okay. Be kind to yourself. Be empathetic to yourself, um, and just allow it. Just follow this process. It works. I have one last question for you um, as we as we're closing here, and this is around weight training for kids. So I know you had talked about 
Uh, this uh, 17 year old that you were training or 15 year old that you were training wanted to be able to wear his t-shirt at the pool. I have an 11 year old and a nine year old now. And when I look at their curriculum at school, it's like they're playing badminton, they're playing soccer, they're, uh, you know, it's a lot of cardiovascular heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm doing for them now for both of them is a age appropriate uh, strength training program. Um, My 11 year old is like, I want to, you know, I want to play like Ronaldo. And I want to be, you know, I want to be a soccer, I want to play, I want to be a soccer player. And it's like, those guys work like, and it's not just, yes, they do cardio. Yes. They're cardiopulmonary system. But if you look at Ronaldo, he is muscular all, all throughout his frame. And yes, it's, you know, soccer, you can make the argument very cardiovascular heavy, um, Mm -hmm. uh, sport. But I think that what is going to augment his success is strength training. But yeah. so often we're told, oh, you can't do that. Like the epiphyseal growth plate, like they're not going to grow. Like they're going to, you know, you're going to stunt their growth. Can you speak to that? And this is, this is a totally selfish question because I'm, I have I already have, like, they're doing like squats and they're doing lunges and we're about, I'm, I'm like right now they're just doing their own body weight, but I'm going to start progressing them with weights. Um, what is your thoughts on weight training and kids? Yeah. What a terrible myth, right? That it, it stunts their growth. The amount of weight that a kid would need to lift to damage their growth plates is more weight than kids are going to ever be able to lift. So not going to happen. You're not going to stunt their growth. Um, All the benefits that adults get with strength training, kids will get as well. Of course, the caveat is it must be appropriate. They have to have control. Kids have less control of their body than adults. So like doing an overhead dumbbell press to a kid, you'll see it kind of all over the place. So body weight, uh, you know, closed chain movements tend to be very, very good for kids, teaches them body control and they get stronger. So like pull-ups and push-ups and, you know, trying to stand on their hands and, you know, that kind of stuff is great. You know, uh, I love, um, suspension trainers for kids. They think Mm -hmm. it's really fun. They're closed chain. Again, it gives them body control. It's all strength training, right? Remember strength training is using resistance in a way to build muscle. That could be your body. It could be weights. It could be machines. It could be resistance bands. It, it really doesn't make a big difference, but yeah, so long as it's appropriate uh, with kids, it's exceptional. And what we're seeing with kids now, which is really crazy is, you know, gosh, when I was a kid, you go back 30 years, kids didn't show up to the doctor with neck and back pain or forward head or forward shoulder. Today, it's the fastest growing demographic of people with those kinds of problems. And it's because uh, kids are ju- are so inactive and they sit so long in front of computers or devices. Um, and the way to offset that is to strengthen the muscles that oppose those types of postures. And strength training is uh, a very effective uh, way to do that. So, no, it's it's wonderful for kids. As far as athletes are concerned, you know, if you want to improve your athletic performance, of course, strength training needs to be appropriate for whatever the sport is. But the main benefit of strength training, now for kids, the main benefit of strength training through sports is to get them strong. They need to get general strength. But as they get older and their skills become refined, the main benefit of strength training is injury prevention. You know, talk about athletes. Female athletes, uh, I think, are seven times more likely to have ACL tears than male athletes. And it has to do with the the hip uh, angle, right? Their, Their hip's a little wider, so the hip to knee angle. That is an easy fix through strength training. If you strengthen their hip and ankle stability, you'll eliminate uh, those problems. So you talk about injuries as a kid. It's like when I'm training uh, young athletes, especially uh, young athletes who are doing a lot of sport, they're not training with me, you know, three, four, five days a week. 
It's one day a week and it's to prevent injury, strengthen, stabilize the body. So when they go run and they jump and they, you know, swing a bat or whatever, they don't hurt themselves. So uh, that's really one of the, the, the greatest benefits of strength training for athletes. Sal, the, I just blinked and we've gone like 90 minutes. I feel like I could talk to you for a really long time and I'm just so just thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Um, if people want to learn more about you, uh, you know, plug the podcast. Uh, we actually didn't get a chance to talk about uh, your book, but plug your book and where people can find you. So the book is The Resistance Training Revolution. You can find it anywhere that you, you can buy books. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, wherever. Um, and then the podcast is Mind Pump. Uh, and Mind Pump, again, we're a fitness and health podcast, but we're also... Um, entertainment. So uh, we try to make it fun to listen to because we know we're going to get to more people if we're enjoyable to listen to. So you'll get a lot of a lot of both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 